If you've got a Bible handy, if you'd like to turn to Psalm 13, I'm just going to read the uh, passage that uh, Jeff will be preaching on later on. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Well, we've set our hearts on pilgrimage. And en route, there are many dangers and snares and uncertainties of which many of us have already experienced. The title, uh, which is borrowed from that uh, book, Minizine, it's a small book instead of it being a magazine, and uh, many of you have purchased that book for one pound. Um, I borrowed the title from that. And it's a tricky title, Facing Depression Together. Several problems with that. One, I'd rather not. Two, I find it difficult. And three, Facing it with others, no thank you. I'd rather people didn't know. And depression has this isolating, withdrawing uh, effect upon us, as we well know, and indeed upon uh, those whom we know and love. However, we are going to try as honestly as we can uh, to look at this, and hopefully it will be help to all of us. So here's the catalogue of of, um, difficulties. Uh, Depression, anxiety, nervous exhaustion, despair, burnout, they are not a happy list, as I'm sure you appreciate. But from time to time, and if I am overstating the case, then, then allow for that. But from time to time, they will impact us personally, either directly through Uh, members of our family, or indeed colleagues at work, or children, or the stresses and strains of life. Let me try to put this into a current uh, uh, context in terms of what um, are the painful statistics. The trouble with statistics, of course, is that uh, they are just a list. But when they affect us, it's a 100% statistic. Currently, or rather last year, there's a 40% rise in antidepressants being prescribed by general practitioners. 40% rise. Uh, In an article in the paper which I cut out called Troubled Minds, I'm going to read these to you. They'll come up in front of you. Just think about them so that we can put this into some sort of context here today. One in four people in the UK will be affected by mental illness. One in four. A lot of us here today, isn't there? 107,765 people were admitted for NHS mental health treatment last year. That is a lot of people. A lot of people. 40% of those inpatients had been sectioned. 
They wouldn't have gone voluntarily. 16,000 mental health patients are under compulsory detention at any given time. 16,000. 29% of acute psychiatric wards operate on overcapacity. And finally, just to give you some idea of what we're talking about so that it's not just some random subject that we think, oh, that's interesting and we'll go away and forget about it. Because you can see it already impacts, I guess, all of us here today. 90% of suicides are committed by people with mental illness. All those statistics have come from MIND, uh, Care Quality Commission NHS Information Centre. You can look them up and, and check it out. So that gives us some idea, just very briefly, of how much more common uh, this uh, issue is for us here today. So at least that's the, the current scene. And again, though not a happy list, we would do well with realism to face it, not simply to pretend it doesn't exist at all. There is no instant cure. There is no magic pill. I think there are three factors that we should think about. I'm just giving this as a, as a general overview, first of all, we'll become concentrate in, in more particular ways. Um, three factors before we come to Psalm uh, 13. What uh, people call nature, uh, we are born with it. Some people undoubtedly are born with a certain predisposition to melancholy, to depression, in varying degrees. It's not fault. It's part of living in a fallen world. It's a bit like, the only way I could illustrate this, that I have, I have three brothers, all right-handed. When I was in school, I was left-handed, and I had the cane for being left-handed, because I should be like my brothers. So I go through life cack-handed, thanks to a teacher who thought everybody in life should be right-handed. It's a pure accident of birth, nothing more. It's not fault. I wasn't naughty. And, and if you were born with a certain predisposition you have to work that through. You might say it's not fair, but it's there. It's there. Nature, it's genetic. Secondly, nurture. We live in a fallen world, and uh, the influence of our background, our upbringing, our parents, with, if parents are all, all over-obsessive, uh, if there is, is difficulty at school, if there's a breakup in the home, all those factors... Influences. We live in a fallen world. We are not perfect. We don't have perfect parents. And we don't live in a world that is characterized by perfection. Indeed, the opposite. But there's a third one, and I'd like you to think about it in a more uh, concentrated way. And uh, I put it like this for memory. Nature, nurture, nosh. Food. It is a big issue. Food. And you see it there, it's come up before I say so, uh, two extremes. The one, that, there, that as a society, in Western society, we are eating ourselves into an early grave, so we are told. With all the chronic illnesses accompanied with excessive uh, obesity. It could be that such, uh, such people, not bad people, naughty people, no, no, that there is somehow an inner... Hunger, emotionally, psychologically, which is insatiable. And the more you feed it, the more it wants. 
it, it was an interesting issue, and a lot of people are doing research into that. But typical of saying something like that, immediately there's the other extreme. The pendulum swings completely the other way, and if people are eating themselves ourselves, I include that term, into an early grave, we're starving ourselves into an early grave. Too much, too little. Do you see the problem? We're on a knife edge. All of life is like this. So, do you see immediately now, we're just not even looking at the tip of the iceberg. And the danger of preaching on a sermon like this uh, is that we don't fully understand where people are coming from. Let me try to um, illustrate this by just, I think that what, what... what I'd like to say is this, that when we use the word depression, we're talking about, and it's the only word, an umbrella word. It encompasses so much, and it's different things for different people, varying in different degrees, and so forth. For example, um, manic depression. Let's just think about that for a moment, referred to as bipolar disorder. Some of you might be familiar with that. You might have relatives who struggle with this. Like most mental illnesses, it's widely misunderstood. And statistics, again, from the same source, say that at least half a million people in Britain have it to some degree. That's a lot of people. Now, let's look at these. What are we talking about? Let's look at these symptoms very quickly, right? Symptoms vary depending on whether the predominant mood swings towards the mania, the manic, or down towards the depression, either swing high or the swing low syndrome. During manic phases of bipolar 2, because they're graded in intensity, the person is bubbling over with energy and feels fantastic. Life is just wonderful. In more serious bipolar 1, as it's graded, the mania is more pronounced and can involve spending vast sums of money, dressing outrageously, and being sexually promiscuous in the extreme. You see what we... Conversely, the deep moods that people are are affected by the swing the other way. Suggestions in terms of, uh, is it curable? Most psychiatrists, medics, and People in that field would say it isn't, and it would seem to be so. But the moods can be controlled. They can even be prevented using medication carefully. Self-help measures include avoiding stress. So before it comes on, know your own threshold. Certain things are to be avoided. Having exercise, getting plenty of sleep, avoiding excessive alcohol or drugs and so forth. But then the list stops. And I would add to that, being part of a praying fellowship. Being part of a community where people genuinely accept you for who and what you are. What is that worth when you are smitten with such a a dilemma? Now let's try to bring that to Psalm 13. And we're not going to look at any other psalm, but we, we, we now make the transition into, into Scripture, and I think it will be an, an easier one for us with that sort of introduction. The purpose of the sermon, therefore, is, is just to encourage us. 
And as much as we can, help us to face both sides of the fence. We can be incredibly patronizing and intolerant with people who succumb to these depressive illnesses. And on the other side, those who do experience this, that you will know that God's grace can be with you and help you. Now, Psalm 13, we could call it, which would you say? Is it the lucky psalm or the unlucky psalm? The first part isn't so good. It's a tale of war. All these questions come tumbling out. And yet the pivotal verse, the change, comes in verse 5, but, and the scales are tipped the other way. It's a very simple psalm, and uh, we're going to uh, look at this. But may I just say this? Here is Psalm 13. I could have chosen any of more than 40 psalms that would be saying the same as what I'm saying now. So, I wonder if we can look at this almost, if if we can, in a positive way. This is a classic lament. Best avoided? No. Best expressed. Why is it that in the Psalms there are over 40 laments? It is because it is true to life. And lamentation, personally or corporately, is an authentic part of worship in the Spirit. There are some people who genuinely believe it's that uh, excitement and so forth, it's like a bipolar spirituality. But we've all got to go to work on Monday, haven't we? So, this is one of these classic laments. And what you have is a remarkable combination of two things in any of the laments. So, if you looked at any 40 of the Psalms, you would find these two ingredients. You find honesty and dialogue. Now, when it comes to depression... Often, the depressed person is void of of those two things. How are you doing? I'm fine. Some of you say that to me every Sunday. It's a lack of honesty. And dialogue. I'm not going to talk about it. And no one can force you, can you? What do we mean by this then? The point of these authentic laments is that they are true expressions of faith. Expressions of faith which are honest in describing life as it is, not simply as you would like it to be. How is life often experienced? Not always. It's often experienced by being hard, by being lonely, by being hurtful, and charged with anger, which is unresolved. This is not my definition, but uh, let me give it to you. Brueggemann, whose comments on on Psalm 13 I've I've got here. I just want to quote it to you. Just try to think about it. This is, if you like, uh, his comment on uh, Psalm 13. Here we have a remarkable combination of honesty and dialogue. Frequently, we are honest, but unable to dialogue, unable to talk. Or conversely, We are politely conversational, but unable to be honest. You you work that out yourself. It may be a culture of politeness where you don't even want to talk about it. Or what would people think or say about you? That sort of thing. 
Do you see what you have here? It is shot through with realism, helping us to face ourselves. The Christian can often be less than honest in facing hard times in life. And well, we know it, and I guess from time to time, I'm one of them. So I'm not here to give you a, a hard time. But, but just to try to say, let's be honest. It must be pretty pathetic, mustn't it, to go to a church where you have to pretend about being spiritual. So what do you make then of um, Psalm 13? Let's have a look at this. And uh, with that, um, hopefully it's not too depressive, uh, a a big introduction, just very quickly to, to come to this psalm. The outline... It's typical of the way that I guess I would do an outline. It's verses 1 to 2. Here's his problem. Here's the problem. We'll face the problem. Secondly, his prayer. And finally, his praise. In a sense, prayer and praise are one and the same. What's the problem? Well, look, you read the verses 1 and 2. Who hasn't felt like this? Who feels like it now? Don't put your hand up. Who hasn't felt like this? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's a classic thing, isn't it? Uh, Forgotten, abandoned, bereft of God's presence. I may as well not believe at all. It makes no difference. The one haunting cry of Jesus on the cross was borrowed from Psalm 22 with that haunting cry exactly so. I'm not saying he was depressed. Maybe he could be. But he was carrying the weight of the sin of the world upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if he experienced that to the depth, to the degree which we never will, then be sure about this, that when you come to him in prayer, he does know. He does. And don't you dare say that he doesn't. For he used a a psalm of lament to help him to be the redeemer of the world. But even more painful when friend or family are suffering physically or emotionally, and it's not now the, 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 the depressed person, but those looking on, those whom you really love, that you live with and relate to, and you say, how long, how long, how long is this going to go on? So verses 1 and 2, you, you have these four questions that just come tumbling out. These, if you like, singing the blues. It is a song, singing the blues. He feels that God is hiding from him. God's playing hide and seek. He's like the scarlet pimpernel. I seek him here, there, and I can't find him. And this idea of hiding your face is, I want to speak to you eyeball to eyeball. It's, it's, it's human language, isn't it? I want to interface with you. I don't want to just say prayers. I want to have an encounter with you. And I can't. You're hiding yourself from me. Avoiding eye contact is a classic thing, isn't it? People who don't want to be honest and don't want to talk. 
And here's this sort of mental turmoil, this emotional trauma, this, these disturbed emotions that are unresolved. There's no contact. Isolated. Turning in on ourselves. And, and, and verse 2 is, it's, is, it's, is unsettled. You see it? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? This churning up or ruminating, just going round and round all the time. How long? Well, you see, these are classic signs, don't you? No contact. You know, some people are very good at putting screens up. And you can't get through to them. Christian people particularly. Isolated. I was trying to illustrate what it was like uh, on Friday going to the, this conference and uh, going from Wimbledon into the, the city and uh, standing nose to nose with people and thinking close proximity but zero intimacy. Just as well, I suppose. But if you like that in church, where some of you push people away, you've got to stop doing that. Unsettled by too many unresolved emotions. And of course, verse 2 is actually the enemy within. It's the enemy within. It's you, part of you. Do you say, I have depression, or I am depressed? That's what I am. The enemy within. How long must my enemy triumph over me? Well, as there's the problem, and I, I, there's a lot more one can say about that, let's move on quickly to this prayer. Here you get this outburst of frustration. And uh, frustrated prayer is authentic prayer, like any other. And you see verse 3, look on me, O God. The very thing, I can't see you, look on me. If I can't see you, would you see me? Look on me. The, the, the idea is, look again. Look again on this same old problem, my problem. And uh, consider. Do you see verse 3? Look at me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Consider. And what do you need then? You need an authentic lament that is honest and is what he calls here dialogical, that will talk. Be honest and talk. When you talk, you externalize some of these things. Talking is important because God is always good, always gracious, always. He keeps his promise. Look on me. And you see, secondly, answer me. The God of providence, how are you going to do this? I don't know, but would you do it? And do it as quickly as you can. So, you see, not only a distant God, as it seems to the psalmist, but an indifferent God. Not only is he far away, but actually he doesn't care. Wouldn't make any difference. Wouldn't make any difference if I didn't wake up tomorrow. What does he know? See the, how <laughs> these depressions can affect you. God's distant. God's indifferent. God doesn't care. And he's silent. He's silent. Uh, I want to quote you from this most excellent book, um, which last year on holiday I read through twice. 
And um, this is um, Darkness into Light uh, by William Cowper. You know, those of you who know your hymn book or any will know what a great hymn writer, poet, and writer, a friend of um, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, a hymn writer of Olney, not very far from here. Um, let me just read to you part of his, his life here. William Cowper, he wanted to break the conspiracy of silence. He wanted dialogue and he wanted honesty. His difficulty was other people didn't. And that's the problem, isn't it? Sometimes maybe the depressed person does. Other people are not interested. They're busy. They don't want to know. Let's stay with this for a moment. Cowper was depressed first at the age of 21 and from time to time thereafter for the next 10 years. At 31, he had his first catastrophic psychotic breakdown and at the time of his recovery, he became a Christian. He was to have five more depressive illnesses before he died at the age of 68. In between these times, he was amazingly productive as a letter writer and poet. And one of the things he wrote was um, an article or a poem called The Stricken Deer. Now listen to this. Now you picture, sometimes you see on these nat nature programs when uh, these predators want to isolate the wildebeest or the deer so that they can attack them. When we're isolated, we're easily to be attacked. That's the point we were trying to say to the children. This is, is, is a memorable passage. Let me read it to you. Try to concentrate. Take this in. Cowper is speaking about how he came to faith through his dark time. I was a stricken deer that left the herd long since with many an arrow deep in fixed. My panting side was charged when I withdrew to seek a tranquil death in distant shades. Then was I found by one who had himself been hurt through archers. In his side he bore and in his hands and feet cruel scars. With gentle force soliciting the darts, he drew them forth and healed and bade me live. The thing that won William Cowper was a fellow wounded saviour. And of course, many other hymns. I know our time's going, but let me quote to you this, uh, how there is, um, isolation is bad, but periods of quiet tranquility are good. And again, let me say that this is uh, Cowper, and he writes this thing called The Winter Evening. This is very beautiful language. Listen to this. He wants to have a quiet evening at home. It would be lovely if we did this, switch off the television and just have a nice cup of tea. Listen to this. Now stir the fire and close the shutters fast. Let fall the curtains, wheel the sofa round. And while the bubbling and loud hissing urn throws up a steamy column of the cups that cheer but not inebriate, wait on each. So let's welcome peaceful evening in. In a lovely language. It didn't always help his depression, but in those times between, and incidentally, reading that chapter on two occasions, made two serious attempts at suicide. You shouldn't uh, be sentimental about these things. 
This prayer, the third one, is this, verses 3. Enlighten my eyes, O Lord. Help me to see what now I can't see. Help me. The cry is, it's actually, it's a cry from the battlefields, borrowed as the soldier. God, help me. I feel I'm in mortal danger. Unless the Lord intervenes, I am finished. That's his prayer. Enlighten my eyes, O Lord, or I will sleep the sleep of death. Well, it's time we came to the second part of this psalm very quickly, which, again, uh, verses 5 and 6 is the, the turning point. Praise through prayer. And, of course, prayer and praise are like a bird in flight, aren't they? You need both. You need both. Five and six. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it? We've struggled with him. We've worked through with him. We, we, we're working through our own particular difficulties. But look, verse five. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing. Can't now, but I will. I will. I will. Here's this idea of praise that is beckoning. It is a long time coming. And the question... Now, this is an important question. What has changed here? What's changed? Well, if you were to say, oh, yeah, yeah, his, his circumstances have changed. No, they haven't. No. Nothing has changed. Nothing. Verses 1 to 4 are the same. The circumstances, the same. The problems, the same. The hurts, just the same. But the change is in him. In him. And that surely is one of the wonderful, unique Christian things. That is why we make the authentic prayer from time to time. Lord, change me. Do a change in me. The change is in him. It's a different perspective. It's a heart perspective, if you like. That, that through prayer, whether in the privacy of his own life, or corporately, or in a prayer, whatever. The change of focus. How you see things. Because one of the challenges about people who are depressed, getting them to see for themselves. And that is often one of the frustrations as we look on with people whom we love. How are we going to do that? It's a change of focus. Through praise, through prayer, the attitude. Now, how did we begin? Well, we began with a lament, didn't we? Verse 1. But we end in verse 5 with God's love. That would be good if some of you could make that transition. It is not wrong. It is authentic Christian experience to lament, for sure. But I hope that we're not always lamenting. Ending with God's love. But, but, I will trust in your unfailing love. And uh, we began with a complaint. It's not wrong. Some complaints are authentic and true and necessary, but we end with these consequences. Look, 
but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing. He began with a sigh of despair. How long is this going to go on? In me, with me, how long? And we end with this song of hope, of confidence. It's not just mere human optimism or a temperamental thing. Some people born naturally much more positive. Some are more predisposed to being negative. That's how we are. That's why we need one another. But a song of hope that is born out of God's unchanging goodness. And there it is. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. One of the things that you do learn when you have the privilege of going to many other parts of the world, these conferences and churches and so on, in some, remember going to see the woods in Tanzania and the service always begins in the most basic, grinding poverty of people. The life expectation is not anything more than 40 where the water is filthy and disease is endemic. And how do they begin the service? God is good all the time. They reply, all the time God is good. You can't help but think, do we have a cultural neurosis here whereby we have so much and yet we are where we are. It's a change of perspective. A song of hope. The love of God is unfailing. So don't turn in on yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Be as much as you can honest, not only with yourself, and there's a bit of a risk because none of us are perfect, but honest with those whom we trust, that we can talk. Talk honestly, if you like. Stop pretending. Talk to God. Talk to your friends. Talk to people who are prayerful. Talk to people who genuinely have time to listen to you. We're going to pray together.